It is indeed an honor to be here at Asbury Seminary amongst ministry leaders, practitioners, missionaries, and scholars. I have uh, had the pleasure of being in Wilmore a number of times. Uh, years ago, I had the privilege of speaking at Ichthus Festival, and uh, it's good to be here in this chapel. World Impact, as mentioned, is an urban missions organization, and we've been around for 40 plus years in under-resourced communities around this nation and through partnership around the world in the work of evangelism, discipleship, leadership development, and church planting. Our one focus is empowering the urban poor, to, to empower indigenous urban Christian leaders that they might participate in the Great Commission and take responsibility for the kingdom of God advancing in their own communities. And it's been my honor to serve there as president for the last three and a half years. So again, it's, it's just an honor to be here. I'm going to preach to you for a little while on the title, The Rise of the Reconcilers. The Rise of the Reconcilers. God, I pray that this would be your message, that ultimately you would be preaching and I would just be the vessel, the vehicle that you've decided to use to say what you want to say to these, your beloved children, my sisters and brothers. God, I desire to be obedient to your word, so please let it be done. In Jesus' name, amen. You're meeting me for the first time, so it might be good for me to share something about myself that you might know me better as we go through this word together. Um, I am originally from Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, anyone who hangs out with me for a good period of time will come to the conclusion that I am really into superhero movies. No, no, I really am into superhero movies. And this is a great year to be into superhero movies. I mean, we've got Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 coming out. We've got Wonder Woman coming out. But if you stick in the Marvel Universe for a minute, Guardians of the Galaxy will then, Volume 2 will then lead us to Spider-Man Homecoming, the third reboot of the Spider-Man trilogy, which will then move us to Thor Ragnarok, which is going to feature Thor and the Hulk and a cameo by Doctor Strange. Then will lead us in 2018 and 2020 into Avengers Infinity War, where we're going to see about 40 superheroes going against this villainous Thanos who's trying to take over the entire universe with an infinity glove and six infinity stones. Not to outdo the DC universe, you're going to go from Wonder Woman into the Justice League later this year with Batman and Wonder Woman and Aquaman and Flash and Cyborg. Uh, Superman's probably going to show up and that's going to be in two parts and then Aquaman and Flash will get solo movies. You're going to get the third reboot of Batman. I do know some stuff about the Bible too. But I'm really into superhero movies as you can tell. Now this goes back to my childhood growing up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. In the summer months, me and my friends, we would uh, get our comic books and we would all meet on the corner of the block where I grew up and we would bring our Superman, our Spider-Man, our Fantastic Four. One kid brought Archie, which really doesn't count, but we didn't want him to feel left out, so we said, yeah, bring Archie, that's, that's great. So he, he brought Archie, and we would read and we would trade our comics, but there was one comic book I never traded. It was a Superman series, I still have it today, called Bizarro World. And the story arc of Bizarro World goes a little something like this. There's this other realm, this other place known as Bizarro. It is an upside down, evil, backwards, twisted world. 
It's so backwards, so twisted, so evil, so upside down that there's a person in Bizarro World who looks just like Superman, except he's as evil as Superman is good. And the backward, evil state of Bizarro World is threatening to invade planet Earth, specifically Metropolis. So Superman decides to make a sacrifice of himself, and he goes into Bizarro World to take on this evil threat. Now, to go with this story arc, you've got to believe that for the most part, things on planet Earth are good. Good communities, good families, peace, harmony. It's Bizarro World that is upside down and twisted and evil. But the truth is, sisters and brothers, we live in Bizarro World. This world in which we live is the upside down world. This world in which we live is the twisted and backwards world. See, we take love and family and we take community and we take justice and we twist it and we turn it upside down. We put it in a backwards type state. If we were honest, there are too many people walking around in bizarro lives in, in twisted, turned upside down realities. Ah, but the good news is over 2,000 years ago, someone greater than any comic book superhero ever written about, his name is Jesus, came into this upside-down, bizarro world. And what Jesus did when he walked the earth is Jesus gave us a picture of what this upside-down world could look like if it was turned right-side up again. And he called that the kingdom of God. And Jesus declared the kingdom of God in this upside-down world. Jesus provided the access, the intimacy, the liberation for us to become right-side-up people in an upside-down world. And then Jesus went to the cross for our upside-down, bizarro lives. He died for this upside-down, bizarro world. And one day, Jesus will return and Jesus will make all of creation, all the whole universe will be turned right-side-up for eternity. But who are we to be as the church until then? Who are we to, to be as the beloved believers of God until Christ returns, until our risen Savior comes back? Well, I heard an old preacher say, when Jesus returns, this is ultimate justice. But until then, it's just us. <laughs> that God has decided to use you and I to be the vehicles of reconciliation, of truth, of transformation, of justice, to serve for the advancement of God's kingdom until such time as Christ returns. You and I are called to equip people to rise up as reconcilers, to make disciples, to be the great connectors of people to God through Christ Jesus and to one another across race and class and ethnicity. But what does that look like in today's bizarro realities? In our realities of brokenness, dysfunction, division. Yes, we live in the land of the free in the United States of America, but we also live in the land of the deeply divided. We are ever increasingly a diverse mission field, and ever increasingly it seems like a demonizing and divided mission field. This is the world in which we preach, in which we teach, in which we serve, in which we equip, in which we empower and love in Jesus' name. Paul, as he writes the second letter to the church at Corinth, 
is equipping this church to be the people of God, to rise up as reconcilers in their own metropolitan, multicultural, and deeply divided context. What can we learn as we rise daily as God's reconcilers and as we are used by God to equip others, to empower others to rise up as reconcilers? Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning with verse 14, Paul writes, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I want to give attention in my first point to, for the love of Christ controls us. To rise up daily as a reconciler, we must live a life of rediscovering God's love daily. Rediscovering God's love daily. Paul says, for the love of Christ controls us. This means to be trapped by God's love, yet wanting no escape. To be surrounded, to be held, to be captive by God's love, to have God's love upon us and burning through us. If we are going to rise up and equip others to rise up, to be the great connectors of people to God through Christ Jesus, and to connect people righteously to one another across race, across class, across ethnicity, we must rediscover God's love daily. Why? Because I've learned that there are certain things in this world I cannot do without the liberating, empowering love of Christ Jesus through the Holy Spirit. I just can't. Now, there are some things I can do in my own power. Like, I can dislike somebody in my own power. Like, watch this. You, sir, I don't like you. See? See how easy that was? I don't know you. I don't like you. See? I to, to dislike someone, I don't need to join church, I don't need to fast and pray, I don't need an accountability group, I don't need to be in a small group, I don't need to go on a men's retreat. In my own self, in my own might, in my own strength, I can dislike someone. I, I'm sure we'll get along fine once we get to know each other. But you understand the point. In my own power, I can be jealous, I can be selfish, I can live in sustained anger, I can be prejudiced, I can discriminate. I can stereotype, I can be unforgiving in my own might, but to love mercy, to walk humbly, to do justice, I need God. I need God's love. I need God's empowerment. I need to be sustained by God so that through me can come love and truth and justice and transformation. I must surrender to God's love. I must allow myself to be invaded daily by God's love. I must say to God, you have permission daily. Love through me. Love my spouse through me. Love my children through me. Love my neighbors through me. Love my enemies through me. We must rediscover God's love daily if we are to rise up as reconcilers. Verse 16 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Second point, if we're going to rise up as reconcilers, not only must we rediscover God's love, we must rediscover ourselves and our neighbors. To rise up as reconcilers every day is an opportunity to have a deeper understanding of who I am in God, my true identity, 
And the more I know who I am, the more I will be able to see my neighbors, to see others right. This is going to be very important in an ever-increasing, diverse, multi-ethnic, multicultural world to not only know who I am in God through Christ Jesus, but to see my neighbor, to see others as God sees them. This starts by understanding that our true identity is not shaped by the visible and the physical, but our true identity was shaped in an invisible place. Jeremiah chapter 1, God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. David speaks in the Psalms of being wondrously made in a secret place, being formed by God. This means that our identity was formed before we were birthed by our mother. In an invisible place, God decided that we were loved, that we were special, that our lives mean something, that we're gifted, that we're talented, that we're anointed, that we're special, that we're set apart. That was decided in an invisible place. We must nurture children in the church to understand this. We must nurture young people to know that their voice, their significance, their giftedness, their specialness was shaped in an invisible place when God was designing them. They were born in the image of God. They were born beloved. They were born special. They were born deeply loved by the creator of the universe. When people do not know this, they grow up trying to find identity in this broken, bizarro, material world. And so based on how things are for me in this physical world is how I feel about who I am, my identity. So people that feel like they're winning and doing well can can think too much of themselves. And people that grow up in poverty without both parents, people that grow up abandoned and neglected feel much too low of themselves. There are people that that go through life feeling good and then when they lose their house, when they lose their job, when they lose their spouse, when they lose their kids, they feel like they've, they've lost themselves if they ever knew themselves in the first place. Do you know who you are? It's one thing to know God, but it's another to discover daily who you are in God. The wonderfully made woman, you are in God. The wonderfully made man, you are in God. That that who you are is inside you. Because if we don't know our true identity, we will live life according to the flesh. Now, I'm not saying that in my identity in God that I don't want you to see who I am. I've had people say to me on occasion, you know, when I look at you, I don't even see black. Must have some special eyes. Where are you looking? (laughs) But I know they're trying to be kind. They're, They're trying to say, I don't want race to come in between how I see you. No, I want you to see me as an African American and celebrate God. I want you to see me, and I want you to see how creative God is, how majestic God is, how wonderful. And when I look at you, the same thing. We both ought to be drawn to worship God more as we celebrate who we are in God. But the world according to the flesh says something totally different. The world according to the flesh says, based on someone's skin color, based on someone's physical features, based on where they were born, their accent, whether their parents had money or not, 
And whether English is their first language or not, we decide who's smart, who's dumb, who's creative, who's fast, who's slow, who should be revered and who should be feared. We decide who can clap on beat and who shouldn't bother. <laughs> All based on those factors. That's the world according to the flesh. That's what it means to live. I wonder if that's what Paul, we're getting at. Paul knew that the church at Corinth was a diverse church, Jews and Gentiles, people of different customs and cultures. But he was calling them not to see themselves according to the ways of the world, but to see something deeper as they were all born in the image of God. You know, yes, I'm African-American, but you know, uh, on my mother's side, my great-great-grandfather was full-blooded Irish. And he married a woman who was Cherokee, Haitian, and a descendant of black slaves in this country. I mean, I'm Irish. I get into it. I drink green Kool-Aid on St. Patrick's Day. I mean, I'm Irish. I'm Haitian. I'm Cherokee. I'm a descendant of black slaves. On my dad's side, we can trace my family tree back to a man named William Billy Smith, former governor, U.S. senator, some historians say member of the Ku Klux Klan. How'd that happen? See, in me is more than what you see just on the outside. I don't deny, I'm not ashamed of what you see on the outside, but there's a deeper heritage in me, Haitian and Cherokee and slave and slave owner, Ku Klux Klan member, and Irish, the oppressed and the oppressor. When you know who you are in God, you can re-engineer and re-understand your family tree and your heritage so that you truly know that you are made to make disciples of all nations. <laughs> the Great Commission is flowing in you. Do you know it? You don't have to imagine the Great Commission. The Great Commission is flowing through your veins. And when you know who you are in God and you can re-understand your family tree, there's a new opportunity daily to rediscover yourself so that you can see others different. When you rediscover you, you can look at the homeless. You can look at the incarcerated. You can look at the poverty-stricken. You can look at those of a different skin color. You can look at those from another land. You can look at those from a, that, that, that have a different accent coming out of their mouth. And you can see the possibilities of the realization and the fulfillment of the Great Commission in our nation and beyond. To rise up as reconcilers, we must rediscover ourselves and others. Paul also says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Here's the third point. Not only to rise up as reconcilers must we rediscover God's love daily, rediscover ourselves and our neighbors, we must rediscover Jesus. Every day is an opportunity to know Jesus more fully, more deeply, to know the Savior. Why is that important? Why would Paul say that? Maybe Paul was becoming transparent in this letter at this moment. Maybe Paul was thinking of himself as he thought of the members of this church. See, there was a time when Paul saw Jesus according to the flesh. He thought he was just a man, a man that walked the earth that was a heretic, a man that would have been accused of being led by Satan for what he was doing. Who is this guy saying he's the son of God and the son of man? 
people calling him a king. He could not be a king. Kings do not come from where he was born. Nothing great comes from there. This is what Paul thought of Jesus according to the flesh until he met the real Jesus for himself. When Paul rediscovered Jesus, it changed everything about him. He went from persecuting Christians to becoming a persecuted Christian. <laughs> he was involved with influencing evangelism and church planting on five continents. Paul, his life was transformed when he rediscovered Jesus. He had to get away from Jesus according to the flesh. Now, we still have Jesuses according to the flesh today, I have to tell you. Let me introduce you to some. There's the black Jesus, there's the white Jesus, there's the Democrat Jesus, there's the Republican Jesus, we know that one. And there's the, uh, th there's the American Jesus, there's the English-only Jesus, uh, there, there's the, the prosperity Jesus, there, there's, the, there's the pretty Jesus. Have you ever seen the pretty Jesus? I mean, like, the, the Jesus, he doesn't have a birthmark, he doesn't have a mole, no acne. I mean, I just, he's so pretty, I can't even pray to him. I mean, I don't even know how to approach him. I mean, I don't know, what is he washing his face with? I mean, not a mole, not a birthmark, nothing. Though he's described in scripture much different. There's the genie Jesus, you know, you just kind of, you know, just, hey, you know, I just ask you for stuff, and I don't bug you. Come on, Jesus. I'm not like those other Christians that talk to you every day. That's got to be just overwhelming. I mean, they talk to you all the time. I don't want to bug you like that, Jesus. So I'm just going to ask you for some things quarterly during the year, and if you just give them to me, that'd be great. These are the sampling of the false Jesuses, the Jesuses according to the flesh. We need to meet the Jesus of Scripture. The Jesus of John 1, who was in the beginning, was the Word. All things came into existence through him, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We must meet the Jesus of Matthew 1. In the genealogy of Jesus, we discover that when Jesus walked the earth in human form, in his family tree are the original inhabitants of Israel, Palestine, Egypt, Ethiopia, Libya, the Sudan, just to name a few. When Jesus walked the earth, he was a Jewish, Hebrew, African, Asiatic, multi-ethnic, multicultural human being. When Jesus died on the cross, we can say that Jesus died for all of our sins because all of us was flowing through all of him. That was multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-racial blood hitting the foot of the cross, dripping from him. We must know this Jesus. How dare we make Jesus reduced to one race, to one politics, to one nation, to one part of the hemisphere. He transcends all of that so that he can transform us. Every day is an opportunity to rediscover Jesus. And then finally, it says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Finally, we must rediscover our ministry and our message. As pastors, as ministry leaders, as teachers, we must help other people rediscover their ministry and their message. That ultimately, revival, revitalization, 
kingdom advancement comes through the empowerment of the priesthood of all believers, of the transformed and the redeemed and the justified in Christ, knowing that they have a ministry, that they are carriers of the good news that is the gospel, that they are the great connectors where they live, where they go to school, where they shop, in their family, they can rise up as reconcilers if only they would rediscover God's love, rediscover themselves and others, rediscover Jesus daily, rediscover their message, their ministry, their purpose. Oh, there's one last thing I got to tell you before I sit down. It does say back here in verse 14 as well that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. To rise up as a reconciler, I have to be willing to die to myself daily. Which is tough, because I don't even like talking about death. But you know, if God asked me how I want to die, I would tell God. Wouldn't that be awesome if God asked us how we want to die? I would say, God, thanks for asking. This is how I want to die. On my 100th birthday, God, check this out. I thought about this. On my 100th birthday, I want to wake up at noon. I mean, why get up early? It's, it's my last day. So I'm, I'm going to wake up at noon. And because my parents are from the South, when I wake up at noon, I want a meal that consists of fried catfish, macaroni and cheese, collard greens, yams, cornbread, and a tall glass of sweet tea. And I want to follow that up with a bowl of warm peach cobbler with three scoops of vanilla bean ice cream melting off the side of the bowl. And I, when I'm done with that meal, I want to fall into a deep sleep, wake up in heaven. That's how I want to die. 100th birthday, wake up at noon, catfish, collard greens, yams, macaroni and cheese, cornbread, tall glass of sweet tea. This meal is going to have to happen in Kentucky because it's not going to happen in California. I can tell you that right there. I'm going to have that meal, and then I'm, then I'm going to die, wake up in heaven. Hallelujah, glory. The problem is God won't ask me. But God does invite me to die to myself daily. I must give God permission to kill things in me that I might decrease, that Christ, the risen Savior, would increase in me. It's discomforting at times, it's painful sometimes, but I'm striving to give God permission daily to kill things in me. And God is blessing me. God is liberating me. God is killing me softly with his love, killing me softly. <laughs> there was a singer, her name was Roberta Flack. And, um, she had this song, Killing Me Softly, followed up by a hip-hop group called the Fugees. And uh, I know I'm in chapel, but the, the song is about uh, this woman, she goes into a bar, heavy-hearted, and there's a guy singing on stage with a guitar. And she said, it was like he was singing about me, telling me my whole life, and it was killing me, but it was healing me. Maybe that's what you need God to be for you this week, is to sing a hymn to your soul, to lovingly kill things in you that have been oppressing you. The worst thing for a pastor is to carry the weight of a broken soul, the weight of neglect and abandonment as we toil 
to bring the gospel and equip the saints. Let God do surgery on you. Maybe that song needs to be your hymn for a little while. Strumming my pain with his fingers, telling my life with his words, killing me softly with his love, killing me softly with his words, telling my whole life with his words, killing me softly with his song. God, we pray that you would rise up in us that through your grace and your mercy, through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we would rediscover the essence of who we are in you, that we might rise up as your reconcilers. In Jesus' name, amen.